May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Pretty famous story. Jesus makes a whip out of ropes or straps of leather, and he goes into a crowded marketplace, and he starts lashing at people with this whip. Um, he, as he does so, these, uh, these people who are sitting there uh, with, with money begin to, to get up and scatter and flee from their place, and there are people who are selling animals, and they get up and they're running away. It's a, it's a famous scene, as I said. It's, it's attested to by all four gospel writers. It's uh, one of the very few stories that you'll find in all four gospels. And it's the reason why Jesus became so infamously unpopular among some of his countrymen. This was the event, and you should understand that this is the event that makes him public enemy number one among certain people, and it sort of seals his fate, as it were. He is going to die for this, this event here. There's a lot that will build up to that, and it will happen more and more, but it is this event which is sort of the, um, the uh, kind of capstone for why he must, must die. It's a violent scene, isn't it? I mean, it's a scene of a guy with a whip who goes into a marketplace and is shouting and and he has a weapon in his hand. I mean, it's not a lethal weapon, probably. Maybe put out an eye. But it's a it's a weapon that could hurt. I mean, it's a it's a striking scene. It would be frightening. I don't know what you would do. But if somebody came in here right now with a whip and started whipping and, and cracking at people. I would run, and I would hope that they came in from that way instead of that way so that, you know, I would be um, further <laughs> removed from them. Uh, no, I would run out and save you. Don't worry. Um, uh, but, yeah, it would be frightening. And, and I don't know, maybe, maybe this whole image kind of stirs up in you some memories. Maybe you remember, maybe you lived before a uh, certain time, you remember when a parent might come at you with perhaps um, a leather belt in a hand or a switch from a willow tree. Or maybe you remember a teacher or a principal coming at you with a wooden paddle in his or her hand. You know, even when discipline was, you know, dispensed in love, it's still frightening, isn't it? I mean, it would still be scary. And so you could imagine if you're somebody who's sitting in a booth at an outdoor market and some guy comes running up to you with a whip in his hand, it would be frightening. It would be terrifying. And I began to think about this this week as I was looking at, well, why did he become so unhinged? I asked myself this question again. Why did he, I mean, he really seems unhinged in this. Why would he behave in such a violent and seemingly angry way? And then I thought about how people often overreact. <laughs> Maybe never you, but oftentimes people react in ways that are totally disproportionate to the event that took place. They get all bent out of shape in ways that don't, it doesn't even match what happened. And, and so I went through and I, I, I thought of a few and I was sitting talking to Abby the other day. And I'm like, where else? And she says, oh, you want to know? And um, she gave me a few more. I don't know if it like had anything to do with me, but here are just a few that we came up with. Lost or stolen possessions. Um, every parent who has teenagers of a similar age knows something of this. Every parent who has teenagers of a similar age wants a nickel for every time they heard said, she's wearing my jeans again. She didn't ask. She never asks. You know, you, 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 you know that? Have you ever heard that? Maybe one or so. Um, uh, Dad, if he takes my bicycle again without asking, I am going to sock him in the eye. I'm telling you, you know. Don't take my stuff without asking. Maybe a parent, every now and then, 
goes out to get a socket, is working on something. Where's the 916th socket? Where is the, where's the half-inch socket? Seriously? The only two that I really need, and they're missing. I didn't forget to put them back where they belong. Who did this? I was kind of hoping Dietrich was going to be here because I had one more. Somebody takes your jacket, a jacket you really like, and they leave it in a kid's car, and they can't remember which kid it was. Yeah. I looked over like he was going to be over there. <laughs> yeah. Not saying that's ever happened. But sometimes when people take your stuff, the reaction is disproportionate to the crime or the offense. Overreact. Becomes violent, him angry. How about this one? Personal criticism. How are you when somebody points out a flaw in your particular life or behavior? Maybe you take it quite well, you know, it's not a big deal. Oftentimes people get overly angry and react in a way that's totally disproportionate to, uh, to the crime there. Um, because the truth is sometimes we can be too selfish or too pushy or too bossy or too vain or too whatever. And if we can't hear someone saying it to us, how are we ever going to improve in that area? But instead, when we hear personal criticism, most people, often pe many people, some people, none of these people here, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, ooh, bite back. Take it as an insult and return an insult for the insult. Biting sarcasm, you know how it goes. Here's another one, disappointment. You go to turn on the television, it's raining outside and the satellite isn't working and TV's off buzzing. Yeah! You get all screaming or the computer is running too slow or... You know, something happens that you don't like. This can't be right. I got a flat tire. Like the whole world's against you because you had a flat tire. <laughs> yeah, and yet we get angry. I have seen grown men come to fisticuffs in a parking lot after a sporting event because one team beat another team. Is physical violence, a physical altercation, really called for just because the red team beat the blue team? I mean, is that really the reason to go and fight somebody? But you know... You've seen it, I have too. We often react in ways that are totally, you know, incongruent with the offense. Can you bear with this one more? Road rage. You know this term, don't you? Road rage? It's when one person is driving a car and some idiot up ahead of them is not driving their car properly. It's always the other guy, right? Or other girl. It's never, it's never us. It's always somebody else. This past week, in, just outside of Columbus in Granville, busy highway, two lanes going each way, a divided highway. I, what seems to have happened is that a fellow on the left-hand lane, traffic is stopped, backed up for a mile or more. A guy on the left-hand lane gets out and starts going on the left-hand berm, passing all the cars that are sitting still. And a guy on the right-hand lane sees this and gets out on the right-hand lane, and he's going to chase him down. So you have stopped traffic in two lanes and two cars on the outside berms going, you know, at a high rate of speed, you know, going down the road. The guy in the right-hand lane sees a clearing, cuts across two lanes of traffic and slams his vehicle into the other vehicle, causing it to go airborne, crosses the median, and a semi is coming, hits and explodes into flames, instantly killing the driver. All because one guy couldn't wait and the other guy thought it was wrong that he was going to skip the line. A witness says this. This was a woman who actually saw that said, my takeaway is to breathe through it. It's not worth getting that angry in traffic. You think? <laughs> really? You think taking action and killing somebody because they were skipping the line, is this a little too excessive? Yes, but you know and I know 
that this is not, it's not a, an aberration. It's not a, a rare thing. This happens all the time. Every day. Sometimes people react in ways that are totally disproportionate to the offense. Which made me ask the question, why was Jesus so angry? And was his reaction disproportionate to what he perceived was happening? Did he overreact, as it were, in this event? Now, I know you're real quick to defend him, but give me just a moment. Let's look at this issue, okay? So take your bulletin, will you? And we're going to just look at this text. Um, I I think three things help to understand what happened and and to answer our question as whether or not why he was so angry and if his behavior was, in fact, congruent. The first is, where and when did this event take place? What was the nature of the offense? And what was the net effect on the people? So if, if we look at those three, if, let's look at the beginning of the passion, uh, pass, passage, where and when did it actually occur? In verse 13, the very first verse in your, in your gospel lesson, the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple we found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. The when and where question are answered right away, aren't they? He is in Jerusalem at the temple. This is at Passover time as well. So we know when and where. It was in specific, in a city, in a particular part of the city, and we know the time, springtime of the year, it's Passover. This is a time when Jews from all over Israel would be going to to the city, so it would be teeming with, with visitors and guests. There would be people just literally everywhere, Imagine like a major festival in a small town. Um, my boys uh, often try to go up to, uh, to Twinsburg and pass themselves off as twins during Twins Days so they can meet pretty young girls who are also twins. I don't know how they get this, but um, they say, you know, you should see it. It's crowded. It's crazy up there. There's all kinds of twins going on. Um, I've never been. Uh, I have used to live in this little town called Circleville. 13,000 people was a county seat. You know, it's sort of a small town in a in a county of, uh, no, of no other, you know, communities. And during Pumpkin Show, which is a really big deal in, in Circleville, about 100,000 people come in on Thursday for the big parade on the Thursday of Pumpkin Show. A little town, 13,000 people, has 100,000 people in it for one night. And it's madness. It's utter madness. You cannot drive anywhere. You have to walk if you're going anywhere. Anyway, small towns that have this major influx, have a a real stress on their infrastructure because they're not built for this. And this is exactly what was going on in in Jerusalem. And and Jesus goes to the temple, it says, uh, and you have to understand the temple had, there's there's two words that John uses for the temple. One is the um, the whole precincts. Uh, It's the the campus, the temple campus area. And the other is the building proper. There was a building, a a very big, but, um, you know, not big enough to handle all these people kind of building in Jerusalem where all Jews would come and they would worship. And and Jesus is in the courtyards of this temple, and this is where all the buying and selling is going on. They're selling animals to be used in ritual sacrifice in the city. Now think about this. Not only is this city overwhelmed with people, but all these people need to have animals to use in ritual sacrifice. So you have all these cattle and sheep and birds in cages. It's just a madness. And they need space to sell them. So they find this courtyard near the temple where Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, were allowed to go. And hardly anybody ever showed up. And so it was a nice spacious area, perfect for setting up a marketplace. 
And that's where they set it up. They set this uh, market up in the, the, the court of the Gentiles. So, okay, here's where and when. Now, what was the offense? Pretty simple. Imagine you showed up to church this morning and you couldn't get in the door because we were having a cattle auction in the parking lot. I don't know if you've ever been to a cattle auction. I have. It's kind of a crazy sight, okay? It's a circus where there are people that are moving cows in and out. And, and you come to church this morning, and that's what you find. It would be very difficult to get into the building. And even once you did, you know, the noise and the smell and the, the, the chaos that would be going on. The one space that was supposed to be preserved for people who were not Jewish was overrun by this market. Now imagine that you are a Gentile and you go there. You have to see this. There's no, there's no opportunity to worship. There's no opportunity to be contemplative. But that's not the only problem. The problem going on with the selling and the buying was even more complex. There are two words that John uses for money changers because there are three types of merchants in this temple courtyard. The first one is people who would take a temple tax. A temple tax was every male had to pay half a shekel, except they didn't make half a shekels. So the Jews came up with a way to do this. They had a person who would exchange one shekel for two half shekels. But they could also charge a fee for this. So they charged a fee so that you could have a half a shekel to pay your temple tax. But then you had to buy an animal, and you couldn't use Roman currency to buy a sacrificial animal. So you had to transfer your Roman currency into Hebrew currency, a temple currency, that was only good in the temple. Have you ever exchanged money from one currency to another? Right now, go to Canada, and you can get a bargain. You get about, I don't know, like a dollar thirty or forty for every dollar U.S. So, you know, you're saving 30% on everything. It's fantastic. Um, go to the UK and it's like uh, 186. So you're losing like, uh, you know, 14% or more than that on, on every purchase. Here you're losing money and you can't even use this temple currency anywhere else. Third group of people were the animal sellers. They had pre-certified animals. <laughs> okay, so you know that they're going to pass inspection and passing inspection is a real big deal. So they sell these pre-certified animals at three or four times the market rate. If you were a regular Jewish worshiper coming to Jerusalem, you're getting ripped off three times when you go in to the temple precinct to go to worship. The third thing then is what is the net effect on the people? Well, if you're a Jew, it's a high price to go to worship. But, you know, if you're wealthy, that might be inconvenient. If you're poor... That's a real hardship. And for Gentiles, if you go to worship, you have to go into this Middle Eastern bazaar in order to just try to get close to God. So this is what happens. Back to, the John, uh, to John's Gospel. Look at verse 15. Making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple, both sheep and cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. Um, the the, uh, the phrase is oikon emporio. Emporio, this is where we get the word emporium. Stop making my father's house a house of merchants. Um, Eugene Peterson translates it like this. It, it, you've turned my father's house into a shopping mall. 
Why was he so angry? Why was Jesus so angry about this? Well, because the one place where people were supposed to draw near to God was turned into a total circus. More than that, it was a place where people were getting, um, you know, suffering outrageous extortion. They were being taken advantage of. The temple leadership had one job. The priests and, and the leaders had one job. Create a space where people could draw close to God. And they actually did the opposite. They were actually driving a wedge between the people and God. Does Jesus have a right to be angry? You bet he does. Is he overreacting? Not in the least. Not at all. So, I guess, the question is, what does this mean to us? Interesting uh, bit of facts about ancient Near Eastern history, but what does this mean to us? Well, I think that we would do well to remember the first thing. The Archbishop William Temple said this, the church is the only society that exists for those who are not its members. We are not here for ourselves. We are here for people who are not members of our church. We are here, the whole church exists for people who are not yet Christians. If ancient Jews were to protect a space for Gentiles, for those who are not part of the community, shouldn't Christians protect space for those who are not part of its uh, worshiping community? Not just space literally, like that we have room for people to come in, but that we have space in our lives. You know, in in a lot of Anglican churches in the bulletin, you wouldn't have as laid out as we do. We we have all scripture lessons, so you don't have to open a Bible to look at it. Um, We have all hymns, so you don't have to open a hymnal to find it. We have all parts from the Book of Common Prayer, so you don't have to open a prayer book. I have been to Anglican churches where I've got three books laying on my lap. Right? And um, and then they'll be like, oh, we're going to be contemporary. Now we're going to go to a song book. And I'm like, oh, what? i got to have a fourth book. So I'm looking up and I get a fourth one. If you don't go to church, you've never been part of a church, that is awkward. Now, maybe there's no better way to do it, and so you do what you can. But one of the things that I think that we need to do is make it accessible, make our liturgy accessible, make our lives accessible. Um, next week or in a couple weeks, we're having some high school students said, can we have a bake sale at your church? <laughs> I said, yes, you can. Because a bake sale is not the same thing as ripping people off and buying sacrificial animals. It's making space for people who are not members of our church. It's actually doing the same thing in an opposite way. They're not, they're not going to have it during service, by the way. They're out in the narthex after the service is over. Um, the point is, do we have room for people? Are we making room for people who are not part? Second thing, that we need to get caught up in the business of doing the church. It's so easy. So We have a great vestry. We always have. Every year that I've been here, great vestry who, who helps us to, to not major on the minors, as it were. But it's really easy to kind of think that our role is about managing the building or, or whatever else. That that's not the calendar. Those aren't the things. The life of the church, worship of God, helping people to connect, that's what the church is about. Thirdly, I think that we need to remember that the exploitation of people is something that greatly angers God. I was reading um, the um, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children that one in six children who are missing in the U.S. is a victim of a uh, sex trafficking operation and globally that 4.5 million are in forced sexual exploitation right now. And that's shocking. People are exploited in other ways. 
especially the poor, especially people who are poor. If you've never been poor, you've never lived in that sort of environment, you don't understand that. It seems like everything in the world is trying to force you to stay in that position. And we ought to, and I'm not talking about economic systems, I don't mean that at all, but I mean that Christians ought to avoid participating in ways that exploit poor people, that we ought to be vigilant in helping as much as we can. But what about good news? <laughs> What's the good news in this for us? I think it's this, that God is passionate about you. That God in Christ is passionate about you. And if anybody tries to drive a wedge between, uh, between you and God, that, that, that angers Christ, that he's driving them away. That you're wanted, you matter, you are valuable to God. And if anyone threatens to, to do that, he might just take a whip of cords and drive them away. And um, there's a, a phrase we use, that someone's in your corner. You know this, right? Uh, that, that person's in your corner. Um, it comes from boxing and wrestling, where you actually have a corner. <laughs> and, uh, and in your corner sits a coach who not only tells you what to do, but barks at the referee when, when the referee fails to live up to their expectations. Someone in your corner who is championing your cause. I think that whatever else this text says, it says that Christ is in your corner. He's on your side. And that's something you can have a lot of confidence in. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.